0: Matthew. First of all, I just want to say thank you so much to uh, to Donna Roth and to Jack, and for filling in in my absence so that we could attend the retreat last week. So thank you for sharing. And, and uh, Jack, I really love that you brought your discipleship banding journal and shared a journal entry out of that. I think that was. Thank you so much for doing that. I appreciate you. And by the way, something that I I like to say from time to time that I think is important is to give you just a very brief, my philosophy of what it means to be a pastor. It comes out of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. It's on the screen here. It was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That is my job description. What I do is equip you for works of service. I don't do everything. I equip you to do the works that God has prepared you to do. So, it is okay, in fact, it is better than okay, I believe it is good, perhaps even essential to the health of this congregation, that the pastors are gone sometimes. If we can't have church unless the pastors are here, we're not doing something right. Is everybody with me on that one? I equip you for works of service. Mike equips. Pastor Sarah equips. Okay? You guys are not audience members. You guys are in the game. Alright. The Rock of Gibraltar. There's the picture of the Rock of Gibraltar that we've been talking about as we discuss building our life on the rock. And we've been looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. and it fell with a great crash. So, what is the rock that we are to build our house upon? God is a good answer, but the full answer is the words of Jesus put into practice. You can even try that again. The words of Jesus put into practice. Hold well on. Alright, so. The rock is the words that Jesus put into practice, and it's all from Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus, it is our desire that we build our house on the rock. The house that is this church, the house that are the families in this church, our own personal life needs to be built on the words of Jesus put into practice. And now as we open up your word, It is with a sense of expectation to learn. Speak to us, Holy Spirit. Amen. So the words that Jesus is specifically referring to, I mentioned this a few sermons ago, when he said those words in Matthew 7, 24, the specific words he was referring to was the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, and it begins like this. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Now I've already told you, the reason it's called the Sermon on the Mounts is because Jesus was on a mountain. I mean, that's yeah, you know, that's what it is. I'm only going to talk to you today. And I was going to talk, I was going to launch into the Beatitudes, which is the next section. I'm like, let's go, Jesus. Let's keep going. And Jesus was like, whoa! a little something you got to say before we jump into the Beatitudes. And I was like, okay, but I already told Carolyn, we're doing the Beatitudes. And Jesus, Jesus was like, no, we're doing this. Okay, so this is going to be like a preparation to understand the Sermon on the Mount. Alright, so that's what we're doing today. The Gospel of Matthew is what the Sermon on the Mount is in. So we need to understand what the Gospel of Matthew is. Just a little bit. Now, today's... Message is going to be more teaching than preaching, okay? So what that means is, there's going to be more like, let's get some knowledge and understanding so that we can fully appreciate what Jesus is saying in the sermon. But I need you to understand that knowledge does not save us, right? We talked about this in Sunday school, right? Knowledge puffs up, right? But love builds up. So this is going to be some knowledge that will be helpful, and that's okay. So just to prepare you, that's where we're going today. Alright. So the Gospel of Matthew. There are four Gospels. The word Gospel means? Good news. news. There are four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of those four Gospels presents the good news of Jesus Christ from a slightly different perspective and with different organization. I want to highlight the different organization in the book of Matthew today to help us understand what's going on in the Sermon in the Mount. Now, Matthew presents Jesus in a unique way compared to Mark, Luke, and John. Okay? The way that Matthew presents Jesus, especially the teachings of Jesus, because all three Gospels talk about what Jesus taught, like messages he gave. They all talk about miracles that he did. They talk about kind of where he went and what he did, you know, in his life. And of course, they also talk about His crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. But Matthew does the first thing differently than the other three. Matthew talks about the teachings of Jesus, he organizes them differently. And my guess would be that this is not a way that you've considered the book of Matthew, and so there's a chance you might learn something about a book you thought you knew everything about today. Fair enough? All right, here's the deal Matthew shares the teachings of Jesus in five separate chunks or blocks. Now, I'm going to explain why that's important. These, These blocks, sometimes they're called messages, sometimes they're called sermons of Jesus, sometimes they're called discourses. They are blocks of Jesus' teaching. And these five discourses are critical to understand. Did you hear that word critical? They are critical to understanding the final three verses of the book of Matthew. Now you've heard these three verses before. They are familiar to you. Okay, here we go. Matthew 28, 18-20. through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now you might be wondering, what, How does that connect with five blocks of teaching? Well, first of all, what's the name of that, those three verses? that has a name. It's important enough to have a name. What's the name? The Great Commission. The Great Commission. In other other words, the great mission that Jesus is sending His disciples, us, on. Right? It's the great mission we're called to do. It's the final three verses of Matthew. The Great Commission. Now, here's the connection. The five major sermons, messages, discourses, blocks of teaching in Matthew are the content... Of the teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. You see that right there? The last verse of Matthew. What we're supposed to do is teach people to obey everything I have commanded. The words of Jesus put into practice. It's right there in the Great Commission. What does it mean, or specifically, what's the curriculum? of the teaching that we're supposed to help people obey. It's the five sermons of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Now my guess is that you've never thought about Matthew that way because, quite frankly, we've got four Gospels and in our brains they kind of are all mixed together. Right? That's kind of what we do as Christians. If you've been in the church a long time, it's it's like they're kind of mixed together. That's not necessarily bad. I mean, that means you're in Scripture. But if we just look at Matthew, the way Matthew is organized is in five blocks. All right, so if you're a note-taking kind of person, right, then you guys literally have a table. I love it. Nobody nobody else got a table? That's sad. If you're a note-taking kind of person, okay, if you are a note-taking kind of person, I'm going to tell you what the five blocks of Scripture are, okay, so if you want to write something down, this is it. Write these five things down. Now, I, I got these from a commentary, um, and it's it's helpful sometimes to use resources to get things figured out. So, just so you know, some some of this is like right out of a commentary, but I thought it would be helpful for us as we prepare to read the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so here we go. The first of the five of the blocking of the blocks of teaching the sermons of Jesus that we are to teach people to obey as part of the Great Commission. Okay. The first one is the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. And the Sermon on the Mount does something special. Now, here's what I want you to get. All five of these blocks of teaching, every single one of them teaches us a different aspect of what we need to know to be disciples of Jesus. Okay? So the Sermon on the Mount, here's a way to think of it. The Sermon on the Mount... is is going to teach us the kingdom life of disciples. The kingdom life. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Okay? The Sermon on the Mount is going to teach us about kingdom life. It unpacks what it means for Jesus' disciples to live out a radical kingdom life in their everyday world. (laughs) So, if you want to know what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus and to live in the kingdom of God, Matthew 5, through 7. Number two, in Matthew 10, we've got a sermon that the name is one you're not going to be familiar with because we don't talk about it as much as the Sermon on the Mount. Some people refer to this section as the Mission Mandate. The Mission Mandate Sermon of Jesus. And what this sermon does, in Matthew 10, is it teaches us to be mission-driven disciples. So the first, the Sermon on the Mount, teaches us to be kingdom life disciples. The second one, Matthew 10, teaches us to be mission-driven disciples. Alright, so the mission-driven disciples in Matthew 10, the mission mandate, it describes how Jesus' disciples are to go out and live out the message of the gospel in the kingdom of God to an alien and often hostile world. Number three, Matthew 13. This one's got, uh, again, um, a name that's more academic, you've never heard before. It's, It's called the parabolic disclosure. It means we are to be clandestine kingdom disciples. Now that does not that, that's very academic. But let me break it down. It reveals what it means for Jesus's disciples to live as kingdom subjects in a world not yet fully manis- manifested with God's power. Okay, so whew, that's a lot. I told you. Okay, let me let me squish it down a little bit for you, right? Yeah, Greg's back there. Go like this. Okay, so here's what it means. It means to live like your citizenship is in heaven. So that third block of teaching is Jesus telling us, here's what it looks like to live as an alien because your citizenship's in heaven. Here's what that literally looks like. That's Matthew 13. Alright, number four, this one's back again out of the academic and a little bit more into our understanding, is is, uh, the community-based disciples. So, in Matthew chapter 18... We are told by Jesus how to live as community based disciples. So, this, this one in Matthew 18 focuses, Jesus focuses on discipleship to Jesus that is expressed through a church characterized by humility, purity, accountability, forgiveness, and reconciliation. So, Matt, the, Matthew, the Matthew 18 sermon of Jesus basically tells us as disciples. How do we interact with other disciples? Like, what does the church look like? What's the church look like in the kingdom, right? So that's what that one does. And then the fifth one is Matthew twenty-four through twenty-five, and this is the one where it's called. You might. This is the other one you might actually recognize the name. It's called the Olivet Discourse. The reason it's called the Olivet Discourse—that sounds really fancy. It's because Jesus said this one while standing on the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem. The Olivet this kind of course. Like, it's, it's literally olives. He's, he's standing on the Mount of Olives. And in the Mount of Olives Discourse, Jesus basically says, here's what's going to happen after I'm gone. Okay? So it's eschatological. It's about what's going to be happening in the future. And if you read Matthew 24 and 25, you'll find out, oh, Jesus is talking about what's going to happen in the immediate future, and probably what's going to happen, like, at the end of the age. So, Jesus is describing what happens after he's gone. Now, those five sermons of Jesus, some of them you've never heard of in this way before, you've never even considered it this way before. That's okay, that's why I'm telling you. That's why I'm just dispensing information at this point, okay? Those five messages of Jesus, they do something very interesting that we've gotten away from in the church today. Okay? We have gotten away from the idea that we're supposed to teach people how to be disciples. We've gotten so focused on getting people to pray the prayer of salvation that we haven't spent hardly any time teaching people how to live as followers of Jesus. That's a problem. The early church did not have this problem. Because if people converted to Christianity, their lives were in danger. They were very motivated to learn how to be disciples of Jesus. Our lives are not in danger, so we can just sort of blend into the culture. And so if you just say the prayer, I guess you're okay. Well, I'm suggesting you're not okay, right? we do not believe in a ticket punch Christianity where you get saved you say the prayer and you're good or if you're from another branch of Christianity you just get baptized and you're good right baptized and confirmed ticket to heaven how many of you have been to a funeral where the pastor says something like and he was baptized on May 5th 1972 and so he's in heaven just because you sprinkle some water on some kid does not mean he kid's in heaven okay right Alright, so the early church knew that, and here's what's interesting. The curriculum for the early church to make disciples were these five sections of Matthew. These five sections of Matthew, these five teachings of Matthew, was how the early church taught people to be Christians. So if you want to know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, read those five passages I just told you about and live them out. The words of Jesus put into practice. And those five sections, they teach us all the different aspects that you need to know to be a follower of Jesus. Now, of course, there's more that you can learn, you can grow, but those are the five basic things. You've got to have those five sections of teaching of Jesus to be a follower of Christ. Now, I didn't say, and this is very important, I didn't say that that's how you become a follower of Jesus. What I said was, When you are a follower of Jesus, those are the things that you learn to do to be a disciple. Everybody get that? You're not a follower of Jesus because you do those things. But followers of Jesus do those things. Alright. We would do well to study those five blocks of Scripture over and over in our lives. There is no limit to how often you should study those five verses of Scripture, those five chunks of Scripture. Okay? Alright. Whew. There's a lot of information I know. Sorry. What is the Sermon on the Mount? So those are the five chunks. Now let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount. What is the Sermon on the Mount? Well, if you want to smash it down, it is the kind of life that is available to those who respond to the arrival of the Kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is literally what it looks like to be a citizen of the Kingdom of God. If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus... That's what your life should look like. Now, we've got some problems in the church. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school. We've got some problems understanding terms, terminology. This terminology, I hope it's not too dry, but it's looking like you guys are so parched right now. I don't know what to do. Like, parched in a bad way. Like, oh my goodness, this is terrible. That's what you look like right now. Help me. I need some energy from you. You guys are killing me. All right. Terms. The term disciple is a term that we misunderstand because when I say the word disciple, my guess is the word you think of is 12 disciples. Right? The 12 disciples. And if I, fun fact, if I asked you to name them all right now, you probably couldn't because you'd forget. Simon is out. Surely you could do it. You taught it in your son's Right. So, Bartholomew, there's another one. The twelve disciples. I want you to look at a passage of scripture. Luke 6.13 When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also designated apostles. Now you understand what that means is the twelve disciples were chosen from among a group of disciples. Okay? So it's not just the twelve disciples. The twelve disciples were chosen from the disciples. Right? And I've said this a couple times, but you've got to get this. The word disciple literally translates follower. A disciple is a follower. That's what the word means in Greek. A follower. So if you're a disciple of Christ, you're a follower of Christ. So that means that if you have accepted Jesus as your Savior and you live with Him as your Lord, you are a disciple of Jesus. Now, you're not one of the twelve, but you are a disciple of Jesus. That is important, because I need you to understand, in the Sermon on the Mount, and actually all five of these sermons, there are three different groups that are partaking in these sermons, these blocks of teaching. The first are the disciples. The disciples are anyone who is a follower of Jesus. Do you know how you get to be a follower of Jesus? In the, in the book of Matthew it's really kind of easy to know who the followers of Jesus are. They are the ones who refer to Jesus as Lord. If you refer to Jesus as Lord, you are a disciple of Jesus. So that's the disciples, those who have submitted their life to Jesus as Lord. but there's two other groups. The other groups in Matthew that are also part of these discourses are the religious leaders. They're a group of people, and I think you probably know, if you know anything about the New Testament, the Pharisees and Sadducees are not friends of Jesus. They are enemies of Jesus. Okay, so now you got this. You've got the disciples of Jesus, right? They're the ones that see Jesus, they've they've confessed Jesus as Lord. Like, the, they've literally said it, right? And by the way, Romans 10 9, believe in your heart, right? And confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Like, that's how you do it. That's how you say, like, I believe and I confess. Like, that's that's the way it is. Jesus is Lord. That's one group. The other group, the religious, religious leaders, they think Jesus is a fraud. So they would never say Jesus is Lord. In fact, at times they say Jesus is directly in the with Satan, right? That's the religious leaders. But then you've got the third group. The third group's the crowd. The crowd. Who's the crowd? I believe, from the context of Scripture, the crowd is a group of people who are curious about Jesus. They want to learn about Jesus, but they've not yet made a commitment to Him. Okay? So the crowd is in the middle, right? Right? Religious leaders, Jesus is a fraud. Disciples, Jesus is Lord. The crowd, I'm not sure yet. He does miracles, that you can't deny. He's a really good teacher, man, makes my ears tingle. I'm not just totally sure I'm willing to give up everything, though. Not yet. I need to hear more, I need to see more. Now, You could could make an argument that Jesus' objective in the entire book of Matthew is to get the crowd to become disciples. Like, that's what he's shooting for. But this this is important right here. But when he speaks the five messages, the five blocks of teachings, he's talking to his disciples. So... Jesus is addressing the group that already has said, I believe you're Lord. Right? The crowd's there. They're listening, and so is the religious leaders. They're listening. But he's talking to his disciples, not just the twelve, although sometimes he does just talk to the twelve to explain things. Right? He's talking in the Sermon on the Mount to the people who have said, Jesus is Lord. <clears throat> So why does all of that matter? Well, because if you think that Jesus is just giving suggestions to the crowd to try to win them over, you won't realize that what he's actually doing is telling his followers how to live the kingdom life. see the difference? Jesus isn't just doing propaganda. He's giving instructions for how to live as his followers. That is different. And you see, there are a couple misunderstandings of the Sermon on the Mount that we have to wrestle with. Because there are some who say, and this is a misunderstanding, that the Sermon on the Mount is just a way to become a Christian. Okay? So live this way and you will be a Christian. In other words, salvation by good works. So if you just live like this, that makes you a Christian. Of course, that's not what Jesus is saying, because the entire Sermon is addressed to the people that have already said yes. Did you get that? You don't get to heaven by doing good things. You get to heaven by submitting to Jesus as Lord. And when you submit to Jesus as Lord, you will recognize the sin in your life and you will ask forgiveness. And you will repent of those things, won't you? You will turn from them because now you're no longer serving yourself as Lord, you're serving Jesus as Lord. Jesus is speaking the Sermon on the Mount to people that have already done that. They've already said Jesus is Lord. That's the way in Matthew that they they determine who the disciples are compared to the crowd. It's the one who would say Jesus is Lord. So, it is totally wrong to think of the Sermon on the Mount as the way to get into the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is the way to live as the kingdom people you already are. Everybody got that? Number two, misunderstanding. Some people would say that the Sermon on the Mount is only for elite Christians. The people that are super, super Christian. And then there's this other group of, like, sort of mediocre Christians. Like, average Christians. Now, if I say that, you guys are like, that's stupid. Well, it's not so stupid because some really big names in the history of the church have decided that that's the appropriate way to read the Sermon on the Mount. So if you come from a Catholic background, I'm not saying this is step on toes. I'm telling you church history. There is a guy in church history, there are two major, the biggest two theologians of the the church history of the Roman Catholic Church. St. Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you want to pronounce it, he lived in about the 5th century A.D., and the second one, does anybody know the second one? Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas was the other, those two set the entire trajectory of the entire Roman Catholic faith. 500 A.D. and about 1200 A.D. I really disagree with Thomas Aquinas. I'm a good Protestant. Remember I talked about scripture alone a couple of sermons ago? as one of the Protestant distinctives that said, we protest against the Catholic Church because we want to reform it. One of those things is, Scripture is the highest, everything else is below. There's another one. The other one, there's a couple, but the other major distinctive of the Protestant Reformation is a doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. And this comes from 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. You didn't even know if the song you picked this morning was going to fit with my scripture, Carolyn. Wonderful light, right? So, we are all priests. In fact, one of the things that kind of bothers me, I, let me just make you, you guys that were like part of building this facility are. It's amazing how you listen to God and what a fantastic place that this is to build. And I understand why there's a stage, but I hate it. This is where I want to preach. Well, but I, then you can see me better when I'm up there. So I just want you to know when I'm preaching, I'm down here and not up there. Okay? This is part of the Protestant Reformation. I am not a class of Christian that is better than you. Alright? Thomas Aquinas, who was a brilliant guy, would disagree with you. Thomas Aquinas believed that there were super-Christians and there were regular Christians. Okay? And the super-Christians are the special ones that we call priests and bishops and popes and such. And that's why, in the Catholic Church, only the super-Christians can do certain things. Right? And Thomas Aquinas also argued that the Sermon on the Mount only applied to super-Christians. False! 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 Because we're all priests. This is me. This is you. Right? Do not put me on a pedestal. Do not put any person on a pedestal. You know who's on the pedestal? Jesus Christ. Okay? That is absolutely central to an understanding of what it means to be a Protestant. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. Therefore, if you are in equal spot with me, guess what? The Sermon on the Mount applies to you. And the third thing, and then we're going to be done. The third misunderstanding or misuse of the Sermon on the Mount is there are some people that believe that the Sermon on the Mount is far too stringent and in fact impossible to follow. So then they, these people say the Sermon on the Mount is just an ideal that we can strive for but we're never going to make it. These are the same people and this this bothers me. Oh, I, I, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ but sometimes they drive me crazy. Is that true? With most of us? Okay. I... As credentials chair of the Church of God in the North Central Region, sometimes I just want to go up to people and say, That's wrong! But that's not the right way to do that. So instead I go up to them and say, I love you, but could we talk about this from a scriptural standpoint?
1: You know what one of those things are? And this is going to rub some of you the wrong
0: way. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's all I am. This whole church we just talked about it yesterday, Mom. There's whole churches who like their slogan is just a group of imperfect people trying to follow God through grace. We're just sinners. All of us are just sinners, sinners, sinners. In fact, could I just let you know that I identify myself as a sinner. That's my identity. You identify as a penguin. Some people are helicopters. Don't go, that's a whole different (laughs) sermon. So I identify myself as a sinner, 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 sinner. Now, some of you are like, the hair's going up in the back of your neck, and you're like, what's going on here? That pastor thinks he's perfect. He just said he was the same, but now he's like, just hold on. Okay? If you mean that you are a sinner saved by grace because you were a sinner and then Jesus saved you, okay, okay? But that's not what almost everybody means when they say that. Here's what almost everybody means. I'm a sinner who Jesus saved me, and now I'm still a sinner that Jesus just forgives every day. Amen. False. Do not say amen to that. That's a, that's a Paul Pondy kind of statement. Amen. No. You know who we are? I'm going to tell you our identity. It's, our identity is named in the Bible saint. We are saints. We are the holy ones of God. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfection's impossible. Yes, if you try it on your own strength. Absolutely impossible. What do you think Jesus died for? you think Jesus died so we just be sinners all the time? Jesus died to give us the power to have victory over sin. Can I get an amen from somebody? This is what it means to have good news. We have victory over sin. Now you still gotta choose to accept the power to have victory over sin. Ryan, is that true? You gotta choose every day, don't you? Amen. You've got to choose every day. Every day, you've got to submit your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's called being a follower of Jesus. We have victory over sin by the power of Jesus Christ in our life. Not because I'm strong, but because Jesus is strong. So this whole idea that the Sermon on the Mount is not possible to follow because we're all just sinners is crazy false. And it's like, the Church of God has something to say okay that's meaningful to the whole world and lots of churches aren't saying it okay and almost nobody wants to hear it almost nobody wants to hear you can have victory over sin because you know what that means that means that you have to take ownership for the sin in your life I don't want to do that I just want to act like my sin's okay and Jesus will just forgive me everything your sin's not okay Jesus doesn't want you to do that anymore And he will give you the power to defeat that in your life if you will submit to him. There's the key word people don't want to submit to the lordship of Jesus in their life. And so those folks who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, who I try not to get cranky at, right? Those folks are short-circuiting the church, making it completely ineffective, and it's why the church is shrinking in this country. Well, by the way, if you want some scripture to back that up, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Hey, that's a good question we should ask people. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The next verse is really good. And that is what some of you were. Not are. Were. Past tense. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Mm. Come on. Victory over sin, people. We don't live in sin as Christians, that's not who we are, the old you's dead, the new you is here and the new you lives by the power of the spirit inside you that's what being a Christian is about okay, Sarah Baumgartner is going to be mad with me if I any longer. so, I'm going to end it right here holiness you guys applies to the sermon on the mount we are all disciples that's how to live as a kingdom person is in the sermon on the mount, that's what we're going to be looking at how to live as a disciple of Jesus. A description of life as a follower of Jesus. What the Christian life looks like. Is in Matthew 5 through 7. Matthew 5, 1 and 2. He begins it. Now when he saw the crowds. He went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. And he began to teach them saying. So I guess the question is. Which group are you all in? Are you in the disciple group where you've decided that Jesus is Lord? Are you in the undecided group? And you're like, I'm not sure yet. But I'm interested to see what's next or what Jesus has to say. If that's you, you're in the right spot. Okay? If you're in this group, could you find another church, please? You don't belong here. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. We desire to become fully devoted followers of you. Open up our minds, and more importantly, even than our minds, open up our hearts to what you are going to share with us in your sermon on the mountain.